This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So for this podcast, I am joined by Sam Strickland. Sam is a former history teacher who now works as the principal of the Dustin School in Northampton. Sam has overseen his school's GCSE results go from the bottom 20% to the top 20% nationally. Sam also recently published the outstanding book, Education Exposed, leading a school in a time of uncertainty, which we will discuss today. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Sam. So just to, to kick us off in the interview today, could you give us a, a little whistle-stop tour of your career so far and also finish with how you came to write Education Exposed? Yeah, indeed. So uh, my career kind of started out as as a trainee history teacher under Christine Council uh, many years ago at the University of Cambridge. Um, I then uh, moved on to start my career in an upper school uh, as a history teacher uh, and then within kind of a, a fairly short period, to be fair, I ended up being put, um, put in charge of classics, uh, became a head of history. Uh, I was a lead practitioner for teaching and learning, and I was in charge of uh, a group of skits, uh, history trainees. Um, I then moved from, uh, from that particular setting, particular school, which I, I served in for about eight years, to an all-girls school in Hertfordshire. Um, as an assistant head teacher, head of sick form, and headed up a consortium arrangement within uh, the town with two other schools. Uh, and I worked there for about five years. I then moved on to be a vice principal in an outstanding flagship school within a trust. Um, and I kind of wore every hat. I, I, I started off as the kind of behaviour vice principal, um, overseeing student care, behaviour, safeguarding for, for about two years of my kind of five and a half-ish year tenure there uh, and then oversaw the sixth form school improvement plan the set the curriculum uh, i was the safeguarding lead for the entire trust uh, and i served as uh, an acting head uh, at that school for a, a year as well um, and then within the, that trust i was also deployed to a, a free school to help them with their first ever set of gcse results and then moved on to where i now am as the substantive principal uh, at the dustin school which is a large all through school um, in terms of the book, Education Exposed, um, it was a bit of a weird one, really. I didn't really ever set out to write a book, if I'm honest. Um, and then I, was, uh, I went to Research Ed Kent in the autumn of uh, 2018. And in the speaker's room, ended up talking to Mary Myatt for probably about an hour, an hour and a half. And uh, bless her, she was effusive with praise for some of the blogs that I'd written uh, and put, put on Twitter and for a number of the tweets that I'd fired out in quite a short period because I'd only really been on Twitter for about nine months at that point and she uh, she said I should write a book and I kind of thought is she serious is she not um, and then at the kind of the that evening when I went home I don't really know why I did I checked my work emails and lo and behold she'd organized um, a book deal with John Cap for me uh, which I'm really grateful to her for uh, and then I, then it became quite real that I now need to actually write a book and to do it within you know quite a set time frame, um, and then sort of got on with it and wrote the book, and that's kind of how it came about. 
Brilliant! That's such great praise for for such a such an inspirational kind of woman as well. Um, kind yeah. of, we're going to talk a little bit about about the books. I, I I really really enjoyed it, and and I would encourage anyone listening to to go out and and buy it because a lot of what you said resonated with me. So you said earlier on that you, that you've worn many hats in your career. So how has yeah. how, how has all that experiences shaped your vision and values t- today? Yeah, that's a great question. I've in terms of my kind of vision and values and my view on education as a whole, I've got to, I've got to go back to my touchstone, my teacher training, actually. Um, I feel really lucky that I had Christine Council as my, um, my teacher trainer provider, my, my university lecturer. Um, and many of the principles that she trained me in then, years ago, have stuck with me and stayed with me to now. And you know, they've been definitely parts of my career where those values have been tested, uh, the changes in approaches that we've had as a, as a profession, whether that's been caused by Ofsted, by senior teams, by views of educationalists, have kind of challenged some of the, I guess what you describe as quite traditional viewpoints that I've got. Uh, and that's certainly reflected in um, the book that I've written, Education Exposed, but it's also reflected in the way in which I lead my own school. Um, but I'd argue that all of the experience that I've kind of gathered together over my career has helped to formulate my ideas and my views um, in many regards for where I am now and things that I've agreed with, I've obviously I've, I've, I've stuck with and run with, uh, and things that kind of fundamentally inside I've, I've kind of disagreed with and maybe had to do because you, you had to do them, I really do question now. And I, I guess I'm in that luxurious position in, in terms of being ahead that I'm able to really carve out my own proper identity and not have that moulded by the powers above, so to speak, because you have to fall into a certain line because you're told to as a, a middle leader, a senior leader, etc. Mm-hmm. So you start off in the book, kind of really talking about vision and values, and mm. taking and you, you mentioned about taking your time to meet everyone and being highly visible as a principal. So how did yeah. how, how did that translate into practice in your first few months as principal at the Dustin School? Yeah, every, everybody sort of talks and there's a lot written as well, isn't there, about the first hundred days, which is quite a presidential mm-hmm. uh, kind of concept, which education's also adopted. And the idea that you've got to carve yourself and you'll niche out within the first hundred days, you know, fire out all of your changes very quickly um, to, to turn your school around or to, or to, you know, create your own identity for when you join somewhere. And a piece of advice I was given many years ago by a deputy head that mentored me was when you join a new school, take your time, make no changes to begin with and take your time. And it's something that has absolutely stuck with me uh, since I've been a senior leader. Um, and in terms of then what I did at Dustin, the, the first six weeks, I very genuinely met every member of staff individually one to one students um, to talk to them about the school, about uh, what was good, what was bad, what was indifferent, and I did exactly the same with the staff. I spent a day in every faculty area uh, to look at just the approach to teaching. I wasn't making judgments, so I wasn't there with a clipboard, uh, but I just wanted to get a feel for what the school was about. Um, I, and kind of in the build-up to doing all of that, uh, and in the build-up to joining the school, I, I had in my own mind, and I spent about five months kind of mapping this out what would my ideal school if I had a blank canvas look like 
Um, but then in terms of, of, you know, obviously you can't just plant that into a school when you join. I was trying to work out the lie of the land with staff of what was what was actually not so good about the school where I, where I am now, uh, because the behaviour when I first joined it and some of the approaches were um, not where you'd want them to be. The, the second kind of seven weeks within the summer term, because I joined in April 2017, was very much about training staff and preparing them for a new approach to the, the um, student care, to behaviour, because what I'd identified very quickly, to be fair, within a couple of days, was that the culture, the climate and the ethos of the school was fundamentally broken and it needed to be rebuilt. Um, so that, that was quite an intensive period, really, of doing nothing but doing everything, if that kind of makes sense. And in terms of visibility, being out and about, being in the corridors as much as you possibly can be, um, being a, a positive presence, and probably more so in that second seven weeks than in the first six, although I was visible uh, and out and about. I was st- obviously having those meetings with people. You're doing that behind closed doors because you're trying to give them proper concentrated time to get a feel of the school from their perspective, as well as being out and about in the corridors. Um, and then when we came back in September, um, it was very much a case of kind of hitting a reset button, which is hard to do with a school that's got an established culture. Um, and taking very much a new line and a new mantra with the pupils, with the staff. I'd spent time in the summer term training pupils as well uh, in the expectations and, and how to behave uh, and how to adhere to the, um, the student care model that we we're bringing into play. And what we found, though, when we, we came back in September is that within kind of a 48-hour window, the whole culture of the school shifted completely on its head and, and in many regards was transformed very, very quickly. Wow, that's that's really interesting. You said um, kind of you, you spoke about when you came in um, the behaviour not where it should be, and you said in your book that yeah. behaviour is everyone's responsibility and that it should be driven from the top down through the school. What what yeah. do you, what do you mean by that, and how does that look day to day? So I really buy into the Douglas Moth view of you permit what you promote, uh, and I kind of adapt, adapted that to you promote what you permit. Uh, which I write about in, the, in my book as well. Um, and I think it, it has to start with you uh, if, as, the, as the head or the principal. And I would say that's the same in any school. The, the standard you walk by is the standard that you will accept and, and expect. Um, so, you know, for example, if I saw five pupils with their shirts untucked as I'm walking down the corridor and I kind of, you know, bounce along past them and, and don't do anything about it because my expectation is shirts should be tucked in, then actually I've allowed that to happen. And I've kind of signaled really to everybody that I don't really mean what I say, so that's okay. Um, And that really needs, though, to flow down amongst everybody, Uh, you know, all the key adults within the school in terms of driving the expectations. And obviously, of course, with with the pupils in terms of conforming to those expectations. So so for me, behaviour is a huge driver in schools. Uh, and it is the responsibility of a senior team to drive it. All of my senior leaders have behaviour uh, on their remit as part of their job description, and they're all expected to, to play their part in helping to drive behaviour and support staff with behaviour as well as a school. Brilliant. I'm going to come. I'm going to come back a little bit to that and yeah. my further questions when we talk about okay. about teachers. Um, another thing that you, you spoke about in your book is that you changed the curriculum at your school from a skill-based 
to a knowledge-based one. And why did you why did you do that, and and how did that impact on teachers and teaching and learning? Yeah, so the curriculum that um, you know, I inherited was a, a very PLC-driven curriculum. So we've got giant provision maps with a variety of skills, um, which go from kind of emerging to mastering. And staff were expected to colour code those red, amber, green for what any one pupil uh, was working to um, in any one given year group. Uh, and the reality is they, those kind of artificial skills, which were deemed to be subjects but kind of weren't, uh, mean everything and mean nothing. Uh, and it was almost impossible to identify actually in terms of knowledge what the pupils knew, uh, what they didn't know where they actually were in terms of their learning, what grades they were, uh, as much as you can, you, you can kind of signpost that, where they were operating at. There was no real sense of where the student body in any one given year group actually was, but more importantly, what they actually knew in terms of, of knowledge. Uh, and in going into lessons, and this isn't meant critically of the staff, because I think the staff are brilliant where I work and they work ferociously hard, but the, the learning and the, the approach to learning or teaching was misguided. Um, there was lots of group work, discussion tasks, if you could get the pupils to behave, uh, whereby pupils were really discussing nothing, if I'm really honest. And there was no real way of being able to say, well, this is what they've learned today, and this is what they've walked away in terms of powerful knowledge from lessons with. So the, the shift for me personally was quite an easy one in terms of my own mindset. Um, in terms of staff, what we actually found uh, very quickly and very early on was that many staff found it liberating, that they didn't have to be the entertainer or the guide from the side or the facilitator. We, we championed very quickly the idea that the teacher is the expert uh, and some of the more seasoned staff that you know, have been in the profession for quite a long time were saying, well, Sam, this is, this is how I was trained 30 years ago, uh, and we're going back kind of in time, but in a good way. Um, and staff were you know, genuinely thanking me uh, that we'd kind of, well, I suppose, almost liberated them from having to go through some sort of edutainment-style approach to teaching and learning to one that's actually grounded in uh, you know, academia and a proper research-driven approach that, that the teachers really bought into. But you mentioned a couple of things there that I, that I want to touch on. Um, you you yeah. mentioned that, um, about teachers, the approach teaching being misguided, but you also mentioned there that if they could get the children to behave, and then you mentioned a little bit mm. about teachers being being liberated. So how 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 did you get that turnaround? And you spoke earlier about coming back after the, the summer holidays and the, the yeah. culture of your school shifting. So what exactly did you do and how did that happen and how did you get teachers to feel so liberated? Yeah, okay. So I think if I go back to the start point of meeting everybody, um, kind of the key questions I asked were to find out bits about them, to understand them as a, as a person, to understand them professionally. But more importantly, from the context of the school as a whole, I was trying to find out where were the strengths and where were the areas for, for development or where were the problems with the school. And kind of the, the constant that was coming from the staff and the pupils was that behaviour was appalling, which it was. It was really, really poor. Uh, and the culture of the school was really poor when I joined. Um, so my, my mindset 
and it's been the same to, to today in terms of my, my tenure within the school, is that you go for a maximum of three, but ideally one or two kind of main thrusts to your school improvement plan to drive your school forwards. So that first year in post, for me, it was all about the culture, the climate and the ethos of the school. And we didn't do anything that deviated from that. So we avoided all the fluff, you know, all the kind of tempting things and seductive things that you might do when you pick up an RI school to accelerate things quickly and show outwardly that kind of veneer of, you know, look at what we're doing, we're, we're, we're a good school. Uh, I wanted to go deep and embed things properly. So that, that second seven weeks in post, which was about training the staff in the new model of student care, we did the same with the pupils. And we brought in, um, in terms of what we actually did, there were a number of things we brought in. We brought in a number of non-negotiables, which would sound like zero tolerance. Um, and I would argue that they are more like common sense um, in terms of these are behaviours we would exclude pupils for. Uh, and it's, you know, it's real antisocial behaviours like swearing at member staff, fighting, bringing in illegal substances, those kind of things we don't want in our schools and shouldn't have in our schools, we, we really clamp down on. And the rationale behind that was to get rid of all the Wild West offside behaviours that were absolutely being exhibited in the school. The kind of the second uh, rung within what we did was from September to Christmas of 2017. So kind of the first sort of full proper chunk of my time being in the school within the first six months. We actually got rid of all punitive sanctions apart from exclusions. And that was really deliberate. Um, we wanted to rebuild relationships with pupils. Um, and that was very much kind of the mindset I had was that we, we were going we to fail in terms of bringing in a really clear tiered sort of sanction system, behaviour system, if the pupils didn't believe in us and buy into us as, as staff. So I wanted to rebuild what were quite broken relationships between the teachers and the pupils, um, for the pupils to regain faith and hope in us as staff and to realise that we were there for them. And then when we hit January of 2018, we brought in a very clear, very centralised behaviour system driven by assistant heads of year, heads of year and the senior management team. Uh, and I had my heart in my mouth before we kind of launched it, you know, for real on day one of uh, January 2018, thinking how many pupils are going to end up in an after-school centralised detention. And the reality was, we, I think we had three across the whole school of 1,700 plus pupils on day one, because we'd really explained it to the nth degree to the pupils, what we expected and what we wanted and how this, this system was going to work. And pupils very quickly got it. And what what we found in terms of bringing the staff on board is that because we were able to change the culture really quickly as a school, um, staff, again, very quickly began to realise that things were moving forwards in a fairly far, at a fairly fast rate, but in a good way across the school. And rather than kind of bulk on things or bring in extra things on top, uh, you know, in terms of that first year with the culture and the climate, the ethos, I just kept sticking to, we're just going to drive this. We're not going to change anything on top of that. We're not going to bring anything else in on top. I'm not now going to become reactive. We're just going to stick to the game plan for year one of that. And that is it. Sounds fantastic and definitely can, can get a sense of how 
teachers then felt liberated to, to just be the experts that they are and it kind of brings me back yeah. to something you said earlier and I, and I genuinely loved the short chapter you wrote about the teacher being the expert and it's kind of mm. everything that I want this podcast to be about in terms of that message yeah. so in that in that chapter you speak about learning objectives being a waste of time why are yeah. they why are they a waste of time I think for your own planning uh, you know behind the scenes if you want to have objectives to hinge what you're trying to achieve with your pupils um, fine you know you can have them if you want but in a classroom setting, and I think about all the lessons over the years I've, I've observed, uh, what a waste of time it is where you have pupils writing learning objectives down, colour coding them, having must, should, could, will, will, circle, triangle, squares, and however many other connotations of learning objective. And kind of a classic that, again, I've seen in my career is where the person observing a lesson or, you know, Ofsted or whoever asks the pupils, what are you learning today? And you get the response of, we're doing metacognitive reasoning skills today. And you, you follow up with, okay, what does that mean? And, you, and the response back is, well, we're doing metacognitive reasoning skills. And, and the reality is, it's kind of pupils repeating parrot fashion back what those learning objectives are, not really understanding any, or, or giving them any meaning, if that makes sense. Um, and for me, I'd far rather teachers use big questions, which is something I've talked about in my book, but also something that is an approach that we have within my own school. Um, it's an approach that's been born out of the history community. So I appreciate my own bias as a historian kind of coming through here. But it's what Christine Council talks about as the hinterland. So all your core disciplinary knowledge, what are you hanging it against? And it takes you know, very genuinely about a year to really properly train staff in how to use big questions effectively in their lessons. But to give you an example, I'll take my own subject domain of history. Um, today's lesson might be hinged around to what extent was the Wall Street crash uh, the most important factor in Hitler's rise to power. That gives the lesson purpose and meaning and something you're going to work towards and a kind of a greater sense of purpose for the core disciplinary knowledge that you're going to you know, inject into your pupils in a lesson um, rather than having you know, 5,000 learning objectives that really are white noise, I would argue, in a lesson. Very, very interesting, that, that idea of, of big questions, because you mentioned that, as you say, in your book, and you mentioned how to keep it mm. simple. And alongside yeah. when you were chatting about big questions, you also mentioned that, that differentiation destroys expectations. Could you share yeah. a bit of your thinking on that? Yeah, and I'm not the only person that's obviously commented on differentiation in this manner, but I, I really worry about differentiation, certainly by task, by activity. The, if we start with learning objectives, having must, should, could, pupils tend to gravitate towards the easier learning objectives. Um, I think when we differentiate the learning within a lesson, what are we actually doing? What are we actually saying about pupils and their, their abilities and their capabilities? My, my view is you're dampening expectations uh, and you're making kind of a, an artificial judgment on what a pupil is or is not capable of by engaging in differentiating the work for them. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's an approach I'm sure we've all been guilty of and we've all uh, you know, had to do at some point. It's a classic narrative in terms of lesson feedback that your lesson just wasn't quite good enough because you didn't differentiate enough or there wasn't enough pace is another classic line I've heard used so many times. 
But what does that actually mean? It's not particularly forensic, and it, I would argue it's actually quite lazy in terms of feedback. Um, but it, ultimately, I, I just see it as something that caps pupil, expectations on pupils and actually creates a massive workload, if we think about differentiation by task, for teachers having to prepare endless different worksheets to give to pupils in lessons, you know, red, green and amber worksheets as, as one example. And it, it kind of lends itself to very much an activity-driven curriculum as opposed to a knowledge-driven curriculum where you're trying to teach to the top. That's, I would certainly agree with that. I recently spoke with David Fawcett and he spoke in his book mm. about how he used to spend all this time. I think there's the, the stories up and down the country that a lot yeah. of staff that used to spend all this time creating all this differentiated resources where now they, yeah. they realise that that's just a waste of valuable time and resource. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear, hear your views on that. You also mentioned the, the importance of, of subject knowledge for a teacher. So if a teacher is going to be regarded as an expert, they have to be an expert. How important yeah. is a teacher's own subject knowledge and how much of a priority do you think that should be for teachers? Yeah, I, subject knowledge is absolutely key. I think that's more important than, than anything else, actually, um, because you know, behaviour, I think you can support staff with behaviour and allow them to teach, um, but your subject knowledge is your key to, to understanding um, your, your curriculum, how you would design your curriculum as a progression model, what the, the you know, powerful knowledge, the core knowledge that you actually want your pupils to understand and when and why. Um, I think without that, you're kind of lost, actually. And you know, if you, you don't know your subject, well, what are you actually going to ultimately to teach your pupils? Uh, and I think it's, it's very dangerous if your subject knowledge is, is particularly weak. Um, and I think there's a responsibility then on the part of a school to help support teachers whose subject knowledge might not be where it is. And I'm not blaming teachers for that. Uh, to give them the time and the training and the resources to allow their subject knowledge to grow and to develop. Equally, I also accept, uh, and I, you know, being a real realist, that you can't know absolutely everything about your subject subject uh, in its fullest sense. I, you know, if I think about history again, as my own domain, or, you know, or PE, you can't know every single sport inside out. So there's got to be a commitment on the part of the school to help you with that, to develop it. And it's something that evolves over time as well. No, certainly. I'm a I'm a PE teacher myself, and there's definitely some aspects of our of our <laughs> curriculum that that I need a lot of help in. And there's, there's obviously some that I'm that I'm highly expert in, but <laughs> there are a few that I, that I just my lessons just don't maybe meet the high standards I expect of myself. Um, but of, <laughs> but of course, I, I work I work hard to try and invest the the time to yeah. to really get to, to upskill there and, and ask my colleagues who are experts there to, to help with that. Um, one of yeah. the the final take, takeaways that I took from your book is is a is a quote that that I really 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 liked, and it is that mm. teaching is a highly skilled profession requiring high yeah. levels of specialist subject knowledge. It kind of ties together what we've just. Just said there, and you alluded to this a, a couple of a couple of minutes ago. Why why then is it is it so important as as you as the principal and your senior and your senior management team to invest in your staff and prioritise teacher CPD? Yeah, I mean, in terms of a teacher's career and your trajectory of travel through the profession, you're always growing and you're always developing, and 
you're always learning. You're never quite the finished product. And I don't, I don't mean that badly. I'm not the finished product. And I imagine people with more experience than I, I've got are not the finished product. And I think if we were to say, you know, actually CPD isn't that important. We don't really need to invest in you. We don't need to help uh, to train you. Uh, I think we've got a huge problem. Uh, we're, 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 I'm not quite sure what we're then saying about the, um, the level of development that we want to give to our teachers. Uh, for me, CPD is everything uh, in, in terms of helping our teachers to evolve and to develop. And you can do that at so many different levels. You can do that in terms of deliberate practice. So there might be specific aspects of a school's approach. So it might be that you want staff to work on pupils shaping their answer and you're going to train staff in how to do that. It might be specific routines for learning uh, that you have that are institutional. Um, it may, it may well be that it's subject-specific knowledge um, or a, a particular disciplinary skill that you want staff to develop and evolve. It may be an approach that you've decided to create workbooks and you need to support staff in that aspect. Or it could be from the point of view of safeguarding. There's always something that staff are going to need to help them to develop, to become an even better uh, practitioner than they already are. And that's not meant badly. That's just about their evolution as a professional. Equally, I think you've got to be very careful not to throw the kitchen sink at staff. I think you've got, that's not to say to curtail CPD, but it's actually to think about it in a focused manner. Uh, because again, thinking about just people's day jobs and what they have to balance and all the other pressures that they have, if you try and overload them too much, it kind of, it, it becomes overloads. Um, so it's being very focused as well with the CPD that you give to staff. Certainly. So how then do you inspire teachers to invest in their own, own learning? I mean, I, I've I just recently finished a book from Kate Jones and she's got yeah. a great chapter titled Own Your CPD. So how, how do we do that? Yeah. I thought... I think, again, against my own approach as a school, in terms of what we do, we've stripped CPD in a number of ways. Uh, we have a, a weekly staff briefing, but actually it's a training session. So every week there's a 10 to 15 minute short, sharp CPD based insert. Uh, we give the lion's share of our directed time to departments to meet together, to talk about their curriculum, to talk about subject knowledge. Uh, to use that as CPD training sessions. Most of our twilight training sessions are exactly that. They are CPD, and that's either time given to departments, again, to think about their subjects, or where we've brought in keynote speakers like Mary Myatt, Tom Bennett, Christine Council, Tom Sherrington as a few examples. Uh, we've also created and really have quite firmly embedded now an action research group within the school because the kind of the sexy thing that's kind of arisen over the last two years is that most schools have got one uh, action research lead who's got a TLR. Uh, we've got a team of about 24 people who are all volunteers and we give them uh, direct, you know, three uh, directed time days together as a group. They meet freely every Friday morning and there's a real kind of um, momentum of energy amongst that particular group not to say there isn't amongst my staff in general mm -hmm. but to think really carefully about research about driving it within their own practice uh, equally we give all of our staff force ring fence cpd days to help uh, you know give them an additional amount of time to what the statutory you know five days is um, so that we're showing that cpd is really important and we share with staff on a weekly basis 
kind of a reader's digest of all of the kind of key blogs that have come out perhaps on Twitter that we think are in line or in tune with what we're trying to achieve as a school. Sometimes contentiously we'll send out blogs that are counter what we're trying to do to say have a read and have a think because you know what we we don't we shouldn't be binary in our thinking we need to think about you know the full uh, you know edge of earth so to speak um and you know have a look at that as well so we try and inspire people to read stuff uh quite a lot actually as a school brilliant i i really really think that's that's brilliant that idea of sharing sharing weekly weekly blogs and of course going against what you what you do just so you you don't suffer from confirmation bias with, with so much yeah and um, i've got a couple more questions that kind of move away from your book but before we do that mm. um I, I couldn't speak more highly enough of your book i mean it, it was it didn't take me long to read it was short Thank it you. was sharp and i, I kind of echo what a few people have commented on on twitter and on on the reviews that it, it packs a punch in, in in every page. Every chapter says something. It, it's it's not it's not filled with with waffle. It's really straight to the point. And I really enjoyed that. Um, so where can listeners uh, find out more uh, about you, and also where can they get your book? Yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, so uh, obviously on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Strickomaster. Um, I'm lined up to speak, uh, all things being equal, at a number of uh, research ed conferences this year. So Blackpool, Rugby, um, Surrey, uh, and my own research ed uh, at, at the Dustin School. So it's Research Ed Northampton. Um, my book is available on Amazon uh, and at Waterstones, and it's published by John Cat. So you can contact John Cat directly as well. Um, and, and then obviously I'm the principal of the Dustin School, and I'm more than happy uh, to host people uh, we've had about a thousand people now to date come and visit the school, but I'm really receptive to having visitors. So you know, people can come and do that if they wish as well. Brilliant, certainly. If if I could ever get a get get down as far as Northampton, I'm based in in uh, <laughs> in Fife in Scotland. So if I can ever get down oh. that far, I would I would love to to come and visit. <laughs> um, so you'd be very welcome. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, could you just uh, something that's really interests me? I'm a I'm a teacher of physical education, as I mentioned earlier on, and you've got a little hashtag yeah. Stricklefit. Could you could you yeah. could you share a little bit about what that is and and how it came about, and also how how people could get involved in that? Yeah, um, it was one of those kind of New Year things actually, because I did it as of January of this year, and I I put out a fitness challenge. I just thought. Why not? Everyone's talking about teacher well-being. And I think something that's really important is that you, car- you carve out 10 or 15 minutes of a day for you to think about your fitness. Because actually, if you think, just thinking about teaching as a whole, whatever position you have within the school, it is so physically demanding and the stamina level you need. Because you know, you know, again, whatever position you are, you're, you're kind of acting and entertaining five, six, seven hours a day, every single day. So you, you've got to have a, a high energy level to do this job in many regards. And I think your own personal fitness is really important. Um, so I kind of thought New Year resolutions, teacher well-being, teacher fitness, teacher stamina, why not? I'll put it out on Twitter. Here's a fitness challenge that you can do for, you know, within 15 minutes a day, every day, and just see if there's some interest. And suddenly, I think I had a couple of hundred people sort of tweeting around it, saying, I'm doing it, I'll do it, love to do it, I'll give it a go. Uh, and then someone joked about it being called Stricko Fit, and then it's kind of just stuck. Uh, and I'll put out a second challenge, and in about another 15 days, another challenge will go out. 
Brilliant. No, I've I've been trying to get involved as in it as, we, in it as well in my own time, and I, I just think it's fantastic that you're that you're doing that, and I love the, I love the name Strickle Fit. It's just fantastic. Um, I've got a couple couple of features left that that I've had going on in, in all my podcasts. Um, my first one, yep. I'm, I'm trying to build a dream school. Um, I've had yep. some I've had some weird and wonderful. Um, uh, what would you say? I've got some weird and wonderful characters working in my school just now. I mean, Andy Cope, uh, Doctor Andy Cope, chose Stormzy to be yeah. his English teacher. Drew Povey st- chose Jesus to be his um, <laughs> RE teacher, and Gavin Oates chose Gordon Brown, who's a who was an outstanding Scottish rugby union player, to be our PE teacher. Yeah. So if if you could choose anyone, <laughs> dead or alive, and I mean anyone, yep. to be alongside yep. you as a member of your SLT team, who yep. would it be and why? I'm going to be horrifically biased here, and I'm going to say Christine Council. Um, she, on, on one front, because this is the lady that trained me and... I, you know, in an educational sense, absolutely adore and completely agree with everything she says. Um, in terms of, of, of why, it would be amazing to have somebody with the curricular knowledge that she has, with that forensic eye in your senior team that can just see through everything, almost like Superman style in terms of X-ray vision. And somebody that can make the most academic difficult concepts to understand can really put them into layman terms and and get almost anybody to understand you know what are really difficult things um i think just having that level of intellectual capacity as a you know a dream addition to a senior team would be amazing so i'd say christine council that's fantastic i mean i'll I'll hold my hands up with up, up north of the border, we don't really hear much of Christine Council, and it's only been yeah. through reading your book and through different things on Twitter, through my own engagement that that I've found out mm. who she is. So I'm definitely going to spend a bit of time trying to find out more about her and find out more about Brilliant. what she knows. So thank you very much for that, Sam. Uh, we're now on to my to my final three questions, and uh, the first one is: What book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? from a historian perspective i would say it's john tosh's the pursuit of history because it it takes you through kind of a a myriad of historical interpretations about history as a whole so that i think that's helped to kind of carve my mindset as an historian from an educational perspective um actually it's doug lamov's teach like a champion I think it's just a brilliant book. You've got 62 kind of key core classroom principles that you can pick up and run with. You don't have to read the whole book. Uh, you know, you could just go into one or two areas of it. I just think it's so practical and so dige- easy to digest. And when you read it, it's so, so much of it is just, and I'm not downplaying Doug here, common sense that you go, oh my God, yes. Uh, I just think it's brilliant absolutely brilliant i know it shapes so many other educationists thinking as well no i certainly agree i love how everything and it's got a name and how you can you can easily identify it and i love the videos that yeah. go along with it as well that it, yeah it's superb you see it in in real life classrooms and it, it kind of builds your confidence up as a practitioner you go oh i could i could definitely do yeah. that um yeah second one if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher regardless whether they're new old what would it be 
trust your gut for any decision that you make. I know that doesn't sound very research-led or evidence-based, but I think nine times out of ten where I've trusted my gut, I've made the right decision. And when I've probably not, uh, you know, not trusted it, I've, I think I've probably made the wrong decisions. Um, so, yeah, I would say trust your gut instincts. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, my final one is, is something that, that really, really interests me is um, what do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching in classrooms? Yeah, white noise, fluff, nonsense, fads, um, having to do a thousand and one kind of entertainment style approaches in a lesson um, really gets in the way of really effective teaching, I would argue. Uh, And I would say in many regards, that whole kind of edutainment era, which, again, I know I talk about in my book and I talk about with many of my tweets, um, that, for me, has absolutely got in the way of great teaching. The the whole concept and idea of a guide from the side. I would... I would certainly agree, agree with your thinking there. Well, Sam, that brings us to the, to the end of the interview. Can I just take this opportunity to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much no, for, the, for the contributions. And as I've said, Derek, if anyone hasn't read your book and they're listening to this, they need to take a hard look at themselves and go and, go and get it. Oh, it's really kind. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been a privilege to be, be on your podcast. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.